Well, for those of you who are visiting with us today, welcome. We're so delighted that you guys are here with us. We are well into a series of sermons that we are calling The Sex God. And as you might imagine, today's sermon is one that as churches go, would likely be considered R-rated. And so I told the people in the first service as well, if you have young children, this might be a good time to take them out to our City Kids Ministry. If you have a Bible with you this morning, though, I'd like for you to turn in it to Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. Romans chapter 1 in the New Testament. And I'm going to meet you there in just a few minutes. If you're new here, don't feel bad. If you didn't bring a Bible, we're going to put the verses up on the screen. But for those of you who are regulars, you should feel bad if you didn't bring your Bible. I'm kidding. You don't feel bad, but bring it next time. All right? We've talked so far in this series about the goodness of sex as one of God's creations. Talked about the fact that God has commanded us to have sex in the context of marriage for, the, for our pleasure. We've talked about the fact that sex was designed to point us to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We heard Jesus say that when sex spreads beyond the boundaries that God has set for it, for the marriage relationship, that it becomes distorted and that sex becomes dehumanizing. And then last week, we began to talk about the very controversial issue of homosexuality. We began to look at what the Bible has to say about homosexual behavior. And if you haven't heard that sermon, I would encourage you to go back and listen to it because it was really intended to be part one of a two-week focus on homosexuality that I want to continue today. In my preparation for this series, I came across an article that caught my eye in the Huffington Post. Some of you know the Huffington Post. Anybody follow the Huffington Post? Okay, good, some of you. The Huffington Post, as some of you may know, is a secular organization. The title of this article was called, Why Didn't Gay Rights Cure Gay Loneliness? The author is a man by the name of Michael Hobbs. He's a regular contributor to a number of different news organizations. He's a gay man himself, and he's a proud advocate of the LGBTQ community. But one of the things that impressed me about this article was the unflinching honesty with which Hobbes wrote. Now, I'm going to read to you a rather long section of the article, but I think, I think you'll find it interesting, and I think you'll see why I chose to read all of this to you this morning. We're going to put it up on the screen for you so that you can follow along with me. Hobbes writes this. He says, For years I've noticed the divergence between my straight friends and my gay friends. While one half of my social circle has disappeared into relationships, kids, and suburbs, the other has struggled through isolation and anxiety, hard drugs, and risky sex. None of this, he says, fits the narrative that I've been told, the one I told myself. In my lifetime, the gay community has made more progress on legal and social acceptance than any other demographic group in history. As recently as my own adolescence, he says, gay marriage was a distant aspiration, something newspapers still put in scare quotes. Now it's been enshrined in law by the Supreme Court. Public support for gay marriage has climbed from 27% in 1996 to 61% in 2016. Still, he says, even as we celebrate the scale and the speed of this change, the rates of depression, loneliness, and substance abuse in the gay community remain stuck in the same place that they have been for decades. 
Gay people are now, depending upon the study, between two and ten times more likely than straight people to take their own lives. We're twice as likely to have a major depressive episode. In a survey of gay men who recently arrived in New York City, three quarters suffered from anxiety or depression, abused drugs or alcohol, or were having risky sex or some combination of the three. Gay men, he says, have fewer close friends than straight people. He goes on to quote a researcher at New York uh, University, a man by the name of Christopher Stoltz, who studies the differences in mental health between gay and straight men. Stoltz explains these statistics. He says this, Marriage equality and the changes in legal status were an improvement for some gay men, but for a lot of other people it was a letdown. So it's like we have this legal status, and yet there is something still unfulfilled. Hobbes goes on. This feeling of emptiness, it turns out, is not just an American phenomenon. In the, in the Netherlands, where gay marriage has been legal since 2001, gay men remain three times more likely to suffer from a mood disorder than straight men, and ten times more likely to engage in suicidal self-harm. In Sweden, he says, which has had civil unions since 1995 and full marriage since 2009, men married to men have triple the suicide rate of men married to women. Now, I don't know about you, but I find those, those statistics shocking and troubling. Shocking in that I think most people would assume that the push to legitimize homosexual behavior would liberate gay people. It would make them happier. That's, that's, what, that's, what, that's what we're told. And I find these figures troubling because, well... As I said last week, we're not talking about some abstract controversial issue here. We're talking about people. We're talking about human lives. We're talking about someone's brother or, or sister or son or daughter. We're talking about someone's mom or dad. We're talking about someone's close friend. We're talking about some of you, some of your close friends. And out of compassion... I personally find it terribly sad that gay people are living with such obvious pain. Now, I, I want to just pull those figures out again. And I want to put them in individual slides for you so that you can see them more easily. Gay people compared to straight people, depending upon the study, are two to ten times more likely to take their own lives. Twice as likely to have a major depressive episode. In a recent survey in New York City, recently arrived gay men, of recently arrived gay men, 75% of them said that they suffer from anxiety or depression, that they abuse drugs or alcohol or were having risky sex or some combination of the three. And compared to straight men, fewer had close friends than straight men did. In the Netherlands... Gay men were three times more likely to suffer from a mood disorder than straight men and ten times more likely to engage in suicidal self-harm. In Sweden, men married to men compared to men married to women. Gay men had tripled the suicide rate of men who were married to women. Now, let me remind you that uh, these aren't my figures. They don't, they don't come from a Christian source. They don't come from an anti-LGBTQ website. They come from a pro-LGBTQ gay writer for the Huffington Post. 
Now, I can imagine that some of you might look at those figures and, and your argument might be something like this. Well, look, the reason that they're so miserable is, is that there's so much resistance to homosexuality in our culture. These people are miserable because of homophobia. Maybe. But Sweden looks like it's been very gay-friendly since at least 1995. And the suicide rate of gay married men there is still triple that of heterosexual couples. I can imagine others of you are wondering to yourselves, how could this be? How could that be true? Maybe you're thinking to yourself, I mean, you might be thinking, look, almost everyone believes that homosexual behavior is good and right. Even the Supreme Court has said so. Politicians say so. College professors say so. Politicians say so. Actors and actresses say so. The most progressive people in America say so. Other progressive nations in the world say so. My friends say so. They can't all be wrong, can they? How can it be that the people that we're trying to help continue... Uh, excuse me, the people that we're trying to help continue to live with such misery. How can that be? And this is, I think, where the passage that we're going to look at in Romans 1 comes in. Now, we're going to have to take a 30,000-foot look at this passage in the interest of time. But I think you'll still be able to see the relevance of the passage this morning. Now, let me just tell you that in the passage that we're going to look at, the writer of the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul, What he's doing here is that he's describing how and why people and societies slide into despair. In fact, I want you to listen to his description of what societal despair looks like. We're going to put these verses up on the screen. This is how it looks. He says, they've become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They're gossips, they're slanderers, they're God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they knew God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but they also approve of those who practice them. Now, I think you would agree with me that that's a despairing society. Right? Like these aren't the neighbors that you would hope for. This isn't the kind of place that you would want to raise your kids. It sounds like a miserable place to live. Now, again, what Paul is doing is that in the verses that precede those, Paul wants us to see how people and societies slide into such despair. And he describes, this is what this is what I'm going to say. He, He describes what I'm going to call this morning the progressive slide into personal and societal despair. We're going to see the various steps of this. The various steps of the progressive slide into personal and societal despair. And I want to start with verse 18. The Apostle Paul is writing, he says, The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all of the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. I want you to write this down. The progressive slide into personal and societal despair begins with, write this down, the denial of reality. The denial, the denial of reality. That's step one 
into personal and societal despair. Now, what do I mean by the denial of reality? Well, all through the Bible, there is this basic principle that God is at the center of reality. And so, the well-being of any person or any society depends upon being in harmony with God and with what God says and with what God is doing. For instance, Proverbs 9 uh, 10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So a person or a society begins to get smart when they fear not doing what God wants and not being as God requires. Okay? But I want you to look at what Paul is saying. He's saying that people and societies in despair do the very opposite. Look at verse 18. They willfully suppress the truth. That there's a creator to whom we are morally responsible. Now notice, it's not that, it's not that we don't know that there's a creator. Paul says that every person knows down deep in their hearts that God exists. And we know it by what we see around us. It is impossible, he says, to look at the intricacy of design in the universe. And the complexity of the laws of the universe. And the systems that keep life going. It's impossible to see all of that. And not know that there's a God who created and who sustains the universe. So for instance, just like, just like you, you would never drive through the mountains of South Dakota and look at the faces of the four famous presidents that are carved into rock there. You'd never drive through that and think to yourself, well, gosh, what a neat accident. What a neat accident that is the product of wind and rain erosion. You'd never do that. Well, in the same way, Paul says that no one can honestly look at nature and really believe that this is the product of some random accident. And yet he still says, we still deny this. Why? Why do we deny it? It's because we don't want there to be a creator to whom we are morally obligated. Because if there is a creator to whom we are morally obligated, we lose control. We can't make up our own rules anymore. We can't live the way that we want to live. And so we deny the reality of the creator God to whom we are morally obligated. That's the first step into this, into this slide into personal and societal despair. Okay, so this denial of reality leads to the obvious next step in the slide into personal and societal despair. Look at verse 21. Apostle Paul writes, For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals. And reptiles. Now skip down to verse 25 because Paul repeats this. And in doing so, I think he clarifies some of what he means here. He says, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and they worshiped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Now write this down. Once a person or a society has denied the reality of God, the next step in this progressive slide into personal and societal despair is really very obvious. It is the construction of a false reality. So on the one hand, you've denied reality. 
But now you begin to construct a false reality. You see, here's the thing. No person and no society can just eliminate God and then just carry on as if everything is normal. You can't do that. It's impossible. Everyone worships something. Everyone worships someone. Why? Well, because we have to have meaning in our lives. And so Paul says this. He says in verse 21, he says that because we've eliminated God from our reality, our thinking becomes futile. In other words, we use our minds that are now detached from reality because we've denied the reality of our creator. We use our minds then to construct a false reality. And in this false reality, we create other gods that give meaning to our lives. In other words, false idols. And Paul says that not only does our thinking become futile, but look at what he says in verse 21. He says, their foolish hearts were darkened. In other words, your emotions, that's what he's talking about here. He's talking about the heart. You see, your emotions fall right in line with your new falsely constructed reality. He's saying your emotions respond as if the false reality you've constructed is true. Now, here's what I want you to understand that Paul is working up to here. What he wants us to understand is that these false idols, unlike God, these false idols are slave masters. That's what he means in verse 25 when he says that we worship and serve these false gods. That word serve is actually a word that means to be enslaved to. And what he's saying is that slowly but surely these false gods begin to erode our will and our minds and our emotions to the point that we are essentially addicted to these false gods. We're addicted. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Now some of you may recognize that phrase, sinful desires. It's a terrible translation of the Greek word epithumia. Now epithumia isn't, it's not, it's not that, it's, that, the, that these are sinful desires. Epithumia is a word that means that you take something good and you turn it into something ultimate. In other words, you make it an idol. And what happens is, Paul says, is that idolatry creates these over-the-top, uncontrollable, inordinate, pathological desires that capture your mind and your emotions until one day you realize that your will is no longer yours anymore. Like you're not free. You realize that you have to have whatever your false God is. And if you don't have it, all of your life, man, it's like it's over. All hope is gone. Your very identity begins to fall apart. So there's no freedom about that thing. There's no choosing about this anymore. It has you in its grips. Right? That's what he's saying. So you deny reality and then you construct this false reality that begins to erode your mind, your will, your emotions, and, and one day you wake up and it has you in its grips. Okay, what's the, what's the next step? Well, I want you to, let's go back and look at verse 24 again. And I want you to notice 
where Paul says, all of this plays out. What's the playing field for all of this? Verse 24, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts, that's epithumia, to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. Once you've denied the reality of God and and then you've constructed your own false reality, the next step into the progressive slide into personal and societal despair is body worship. Body worship. And that makes perfect sense. Because in the false reality that has been constructed, remember, you've eliminated God. Immaterial reality doesn't exist. The only God that you worship are the ones that you've created. So it has to come from things that you can touch, you can feel. Right? So immaterial reality doesn't exist. The only thing that exists are material things. And so whatever pleasure and meaning that you're going to get out of life has to come primarily through your bodily experiences. Now, there are many ways that people try to wring meaning in life out of their bodies. But the most powerful, what do you think it is? Most powerful. It's sexual pleasure. If you were going to say Oreo cookies, again, that would be very close. But sexual pleasure is the most powerful. And this is why people and cultures in their final stages become sexually obsessed. Now, I wonder... I wonder if this progressive slide sounds vaguely familiar to any of you. Like I can't imagine that anyone here today would argue that we're not a culture that worships the body and that is sexually obsessed. Let me just ask you, how much time and attention? How much time and attention is given in our culture to jokes and discussions and articles and TV shows about breasts, butts, vaginas, the penis, abs, physique, and more. We're body worshipers as a culture. And as a result, we've become sexually obsessed. And the problem is that like any addiction... Our sexual obsession can't be satisfied. It takes more and more to create the same feeling. Ask anyone here who has struggled with pornography. They'll tell you that. That it takes more and more to to experience the same amount of uh, stimulation as before. And so we come up with more and more perversions to create the same feeling. Paul says it this way, that we, we create more ways to degrade our bodies, he says, with one another. Now I want to be clear about something. Up to this point, Paul is talking about heterosexual perversion. Heterosexual perversion. If you think today, like if you don't struggle with same-sex attraction and you think today, well boy, this this passage is all about gay people. No, let me tell you, it's about it's about it's about you. It's about straight people. It's about how, we, how straight people create greater and greater perversion to degrade one another. But, as he moves to the last stage in this progressive process of personal and societal, societal despair, he begins to speak to homosexual behavior as a perversion. Look at verse 26. He says, because of this, 
God gave them over as a culture, as a society, to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Now, two things about that last phrase when he says that they received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Some people wrongly conclude that Paul is only referring to gay people there. That's not the larger context of the passage. I said that just a moment ago. He's speaking to both heterosexual perversion and homosexual behavior. And the second thing is what he's describing when he says that, that they, that they receive in themselves the due penalty for their error. What he's describing is despair. In other words, at some point, God will give a person or a society over to body worship. And let that person or that culture experience the horrible consequences of sexual sin. Whether it's homosexual or heterosexual sin. See, because here's the thing. Like, you can construct a false reality all you want, but that doesn't mean that your false reality is true. I can think to myself, you know what? In my reality, I can jump off of a building and I can fly. But guess what's going to happen? I'm going to crash. The laws of the universe are going to break me. I can break those laws, but they're going to break me. And in the same way, even though we've constructed a false reality, the moral laws of God, when they are broken, will break you. Which brings us back to Paul's description of personal and societal despair that we started with a few minutes ago. And it also brings us back to the question that we asked earlier. How can it be that gay people are still so miserable when so many people are working so hard to legitimize homosexual behavior? What's the answer to that question? The answer is that we are a society that has constructed a false reality One in which we believe with all of our hearts things like this. Here's one. A woman should be able to do with her body anything she wants to do. Like we believe that. We believe it intellectually. We believe it in our emotions. That sounds right. It feels right to us, doesn't it? We'll fight for that principle. We'll sacrifice for that principle. We believe it. It feels right. Here's another one. I should be able to have sex with whomever I want as long as we're both consenting adults whenever I want. I'm going to tell you something. That feels right. Everything in us says, yeah, that's right. Here's another one. Homosexuality is a legitimate form of sexual expression. Like that's something that we believe in, and our emotions tell us that that's right. And, and we teach that to one another, and we encourage that and other beliefs, and we encourage one another to act on those beliefs. 
One of my favorite authors, the late and the highly uh, respected philosopher Dallas Willard, who's the professor of philosophy at USC prior to his death. He was writing, he was commenting on this very passage that we're looking at. And he writes this. One could be forgiven for thinking that this looks like now. Who does not recognize in these words the prevailing tone and texture of contemporary life? Who does not know that such behavior, if not approved outright, is excused or even justified by clever psychological, legal, and moral maneuvers, often reciting elevated principles, beliefs? In fact, this has been, he says, the end stage of every successful human society that has risen on earth. It's unsustainable. The false reality that we construct and the beliefs within it lead to despair. This is why gay men and women continue to live in such misery even though people work so hard to legitimize homosexual behavior. Because when you construct a false reality, it is an unsustainable reality and it crushes you in the end. Well, what's my point this morning? This, you know, this passage cuts across every person in this room and every generation represented here. But let me come clean. The generations that I had in mind most this week as I prepared this sermon were millennials and the generations behind them. And the reason is that you guys are the future of Christianity in America. You know, some of us here represent the past, some of us, you know, in the present of Christianity in America. But you guys, millennials and the the cultures, or excuse me, and the generations behind you, you represent the future of Christianity in America. And this passage leaves you with three choices. One is that you can go along with the majority and the false reality that has been constructed that leads gay men and women to continued brokenness and despair, praising yourself all along for being so progressive and so open-minded. You can do that. That's one, of, that's one choice that you have. The second choice that you have is you can be moralistic. And you could condemn gay people and you could praise yourself for being so righteous that you don't deal with same-sex attraction. You could do that. Or here's the third choice. You could go against the grain. You could believe in the truth of Scripture. You could look through the prevailing wisdom of our culture that says that homosexual behavior is good and right, you could look past that and you could see the misery and the despair that gay men and women are living with, no matter what anybody tells you. Because the Bible says that's true. And you can persist in loving gay people enough that when the opportunity presents itself and when you have the right relationship with them, That you can tell them that our culture is perpetuating a false reality. 
And you could tell them that like everyone else in the room here this morning, they're sexually broken. And you could tell them that there's someone who loves them just as much as he loves you. And someone who can give them hope instead of despair. And who took the full wrath of God on the cross so that they wouldn't have to. Who am I, who am I talking about? Of course, I'm talking about the Lord Jesus Christ who died for heterosexual sinners and homosexual sinners. That's a choice that you could make. And I'm going to tell you that if you make that choice, it won't be popular. Some people will hate you. Some people will tell you that you aren't progressive, that you're homophobic. They will defriend you in person and on Facebook. But Jesus told his disciples one time, he said, take up your cross and follow me. Jesus was hated and crucified because he had the audacity to say to a culture that they were living in a false reality. And if he was hated, so will you be. Listen to me now. Listen listen to this. The way of a society that has created a false reality only leads to despair. I'm not talking about going out and being a bore about this. I'm not talking about doing sexual conversion therapy on people. I'm not talking about shaming anyone. I'm not, I'm not talking about standing up with a bullhorn at, at USI and making a fool out of yourself by, by shouting against homosexual behavior. I'm not talking about any of that. I'm talking about loving the people in your life enough to not sign on to their delusions. But to love them anyway. In the same way that Christ loved you and me. Who were once his enemies. But who are now saved through belief in the cross of Jesus Christ. You guys are the future millennials. And the generations that follow. You're the future of Christianity. I'm going to tell you. I could be very wrong about this. This doesn't come from the Bible. This is just my opinion. It is not equal to the Bible, believe me. But I'm going to tell you what I think. I think that the persecution that the church is going to face in the future is going to come through the attempt to legitimize homosexual behavior in our culture. I think the church will experience persecution over this. And in the face of that persecution, those of you who are millennials and younger, you're going to have to make decisions. One of the three that I mentioned earlier. I hope you'll take the third. I hope that what you will do is that you will love people enough to refuse to accept their delusions and that you will point them to the one who loves heterosexuals and homosexuals just the same, the Lord Jesus Christ no matter what the cost to you is. Would you bow with me for prayer? Pray this morning, Lord, for people who struggle with same-sex attraction. Undoubtedly, these are hard words to hear, especially when compared against a culture that says the exact opposite. 
Lord, I pray that as they hear these words, that they would hear them coming from your heart. And that it comes out of a heart of great love, so much so that you were willing, that you sent your own son to die on a cross for people who wrestle with same-sex attraction. And then, Lord, for the rest of us that are here in the room this morning, Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to believe in the truth of Scripture and give us the love and the mercy to be able to continue to point people to you. That we would not sign on to their false realities, to the delusions that they live with. That we would love them with them, but that every time we get an opportunity, when, we have, when we're close enough to them to do so, that we would point them to the cross of Jesus Christ, where they can find healing and forgiveness and mercy. And we pray this because, Lord, you've been so gracious to each and every one of us. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ, that we worship today. Amen.